Hi, welcome to North of 48. This is part two of In the Middle of Ukraine uh, with journalist Philip Eitner. Professor Ann Lee continues the discussion. I, I wanted to, to get your, your sense of what the post-war, because there, there will be a post-war Ukraine. Um, that yes. Ultimately, ultimately, Ukraine is going to have to be one of the most well-armed uh, nations in, um, well, on the continent. Uh, simply because of this war. And I wanted to get your sense of how you you see that happening, because, uh, you know, just the fact that the U.S. is sending things, but it, it's pretty clear that from, a you know, sort of a war Keynesian, military Keynesianism, that there's going to have to be a huge standing army in, U- in Ukraine. Yeah, <laughs> most likely that's right. It depends on what happens in Russia, of course. To a certain degree, but the, the, um, because I, I think there's the <laughs> very distinct possibility that Russia, um, uh, when it loses this war, which it will do, uh, one way or the other, it's going to lose this war. Um, and it's going to have to look in the mirror and do some really hard assessing of its sense of identity, which has been um, a long time coming. Uh, you could uh, you could argue uh, obviously 1991 and the fall of the Soviet Union, but you could go back you know deeper into Russia's history, um, and and they're going to have to reassess who they are. They're going to have to do the hard work Russians are uh, of looking in the mirror and reassessing who they are, and and that's going to be a, a a difficult thing. But um, U- Ukrainian Ukrainian sovereignty. And its place on in the world and its place on the European continent, I think it's a really interesting topic of discussion because I I'm not <laughs> I I don't give a pass to the European powers. I think Europe is there have been elements within Europe that have been deathly afraid of a sovereign Ukraine. Um, this has always been, as I talked about, empire. This has always been a, 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 a territory that has actually been up for grabs. And so a lot of powers, I mean, when, when Hitler spoke about Lebensraum in the Second World War, he wasn't talking about the middle of nowhere in Siberia. Mm-hmm. Nobody wanted to conquer the taiga. This is what they wanted. Ukraine is what the, the Nazis wanted. This was the Lebensraum. And there's a legacy of that from the Austro-Hungarian Empire, to the Germans, to the Turks. Lots of people have coveted Ukraine, and it's been this this moving thing that people... And this will now finally finish that question, and it's going to be massive in its uh, historical impact um, because it will once and for all um, establish a sovereign, free country, an enormous country, by the way, you look at the size of Ukraine in European standards. Mm-hmm. And I think there are elements within, I think it's one of the, I can't point to anything specifically, but I think it's one of the reasons why the Europeans, the Germans in particular, have been so reluctant uh, in in their support of Ukraine. It's because, um, you know, we talk about Russian dominance, dominance over Ukraine. Western European powers have tried to exert their dominance over Ukraine for centuries as well. So, you know, I think there was a there was a reluctance on the part of Germany because Europeans understand that if, if Ukraine does get sovereignty and self-determination and 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 codified borders, 
there's a very strong chance that the power balance within Europe may very well shift from a Franco-German um, dominance in the European Union to a Polish, Lithuanian, Ukrainian dominance. There's so much wealth in Ukraine. There is agriculture. There is military industrial, even before this war and even before uh, Western powers you know, flooded this place with weaponry, there was an enormous military industrial complex. There is, uh, there's international, uh, there's intellectual property. This is a highly educated, um, uh, population. And just, uh, just by sheer size on, on the European continent, this is going to, this is going to change Europe. Yes. Uh, there will, you know, your, the Ukrainians are going to exert their influence. And I think many Europeans are concerned about that. When, Ukraine is sovereign and this war is ended, they're going to be a powerhouse, an absolute yep. powerhouse on the Ukrainian, uh, on the European continent. And I think the Germans are really afraid of it. The, the, the French to a certain extent, and then the, the Brits, the Brits like to be spoilers, of course, uh, on the continent. They have a history of, you know. Well, they made uh, some, kind of, uh, they made some moves about sort of uh, allying through Poland to yeah, Ukraine, and that—that's, I think, a hundred percent development. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. And then the Poles have a long <laughs> history with Ukraine. <laughs> I mean, you know, Western Ukraine was Poland uh, for for many years, and there was the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. And anyhow, I look. What it really comes down to is that this is a massively historically important war and it's going to change Europe and now how does Russia respond once it loses um, that's also going to be hugely significant I mean one can argue that Russia it has been for centuries um, uh, unmanageable because it's, just, it's Catherine the Great in the 18th century expanded rapidly and arguably too rapid and um they're going to have to deal with not being an empire anymore. And that's going to be a, the, 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 the shockwave from uh, the Russian defeat in Ukraine is going to be arguably a bigger uh, crisis, I believe, a bigger crisis than the actual war itself. Because to my mind, um, uh, you know, it's a done deal. Ukraine has won this war. Um, it's just a matter of what Ukraine looks like in a post-war situation. So um, this is, it's enormous. The, the, the historical implications of this war are hugely significant. And, um, you know, America is, Canada, America, the, the, the North, you know, the North Atlantic uh, Treaty Organization, they're going to have to adapt to, uh, what happens in a post-war Ukraine, but make no doubt about it, this country is going to be sovereign. And if we remove our support for them, they won't stop fighting. It. We'll have to sit back and watch as Ukrainians will continue to fight and it will be ugly, but they're not, they're just not going to, it, I equate it to a, a an abusive rela uh, marriage where the, 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 you know, the, the abused spouse has already decided Right, my bags are packed. I've tried to leave a couple of times in the past, and I've always been 
you know, refuse, but, but, and, and the abuser's spouse in the form of Russia has been saying, you know, how dare you leave me? I'm going to beat you into loving me again. And it's, you know, as those of us who have been eyewitness or have been involved in an abusive relationship know, you know, there's a, there's a point where the, the die is cast and the die has been cast here. They're, they're not, they're never going to be connected to Russia again, ever. And, you know, with or without our support. So. Can I um, just interject? You guys brought up uh, Poland and Ukraine, and there was a lot of animosity after the Second World War uh, with uh, because some of the Ukrainians were um, with the Nazis, and then they went over to the Soviets. And, and my point is, nowadays, Poland, and like Poland is Ukraine's best friend is is um the synergy between between them i think poland recognizes how uh if ukraine falls poland could be next and the baltic countries there's there's a reason why they chose nato is because they're scared of going back into the soviet system so i just wanted to reiterate that and do you have another question before yeah. we go to questions no i don't and i want to i really do want to thank uh Thank Philip, because uh, so much information that we're getting has so much filtration, and I really yeah. appreciate your your. Yeah, I, I really thank you, Anne. I I, <clears throat> I want to touch on that, and um, sure. Walter, it's, re it's really important to understand this. Um, but because Moscow, Moscow will tell you that NATO expanded, and that they are they are scared of NATO on their border. What happened was NATO didn't expand. The countries that had been living under the thumb of the Kremlin came running to embrace the West. They fled Russia. Again, it's the abusive relationship that Moscow cannot recognize that they are an abuser. I go back to the, the, the abusive marriage analogy yet again. They were abused by Moscow. And when the Soviet Union fell apart, they ran as quickly as they could away from Moscow. Not They weren't seduced by the West. They fled an abuser in Moscow. That's what Georgians did. That's what the Baltics did. That's what we even see in Central Asian countries now. Now, they might be looking at a uh, relationship with China, but in essence, what they're running away from is Moscow, because Moscow has a vertical power structure. Everything flows to Moscow, um, is, is, is an abuser, and they don't even recognize it. They don't even, they don't even acknowledge it. They, they, they all, yeah, our former, we were all in the Soviet Union together, and everybody loved us. No, they, the, Russia and Moscow in particular were, uh, you know, uh, yeah. Abusing, they were, they were, you know, uh, uh, taking everything that they could because that's the vertical power structure that exists in Russia. And I could say the same thing about, you know, Irkutsk or Yekaterinburg or Vladivostok or Rostov, as I would say about Kiev or Tbilisi. Everything gets sucked up into the power of of Moscow, and that's that's how they exist because Russian power structures is a is a binary it's a null it's 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 uh, a win or lose it's, it's all nulls and and uh ones um 
And, and you know, so Ukraine said enough. I don't want to be part of that. Georgia has said enough. I don't want to be part of that. Uzbekistan, you know, take your pick, the Baltic states. And the Russians can't get it through their head. Moscow can't get it through its head that we're not seducing these guys away. They're running away from you because you're abusive. And you're and 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 it's a cruel, um, you know, uh, power structure. It's a power power yeah. dynamic that people don't want to limit. Well, so, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, oh, go no, no go. Right. I, I could touch on the the, the whole you know, Second World War and. Uh, right. Yeah. <laughs> no, we we we, we in Ukraine. I would love to do a ten-hour podcast with you, my friend. Yeah, we could easily could easily yeah easily could. I will make the one quick point about that whole period with Stepan Bandera. I want to make two quick points about Bandera, if I may. Okay, sure. Because Bandera is this big boogeyman. One, um, one cannot look at the Second World War and Ukrainian complicity with uh, Nazi Germany without understanding that the Holodomor, um, which was created by uh, the Soviet Union one way or the other, and I don't want to, we could go into it, but I don't want to go into the final, you know, the, the finite details about what happened to the Holodomor, uh, a forced uh, famine, which killed, you know, by estimates somewhere between 7 and 10 million people. Mm -hmm. um, everybody had a family member that was starved to death, starved to death by an institutionalized policy from Moscow, from Stalin. You get your head around that. The idea that if you didn't lose a family member, you knew somebody whose family had lost somebody by starvation, by starvation mm -hmm. in an, in a, in the 20th century. And that, and, and that, you know, motivated a lot of people uh, aside from the centuries of abuse from Moscow. Um, but, but then secondly, to understand the history of that period, um, is to also recognize that, you know, Victor gets to write the history. And I am not a fan of Stefan Bandera. The, the, the things that we know that he definitively did were violent and, and, um, were, were counterproductive in my opinion, which is why he was expelled, um, from the, the, the Ukrainian nationalist party. Mm -hmm. Again, nationalists in terms of I want to have a nation state. And that's Ukraine. something nobody says uh, that he was. Nobody expelled. talks about this. That's right. He was he was expelled from the OUN, uh, the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalism. That's why the OUNB was was adopted. Nobody talks about the fact that two of his brothers were killed in Auschwitz. No, nobody talks about the fact that he was detained by the Germans and held in house arrest in Berlin. I am not. Again, I want to make it. 100% clear, not a Bandera uh, fan. No. Um, I, I know a lot of Ukrainians who are, you know, have the same opinion. But Bandera's history has been manipulated by the Russians for 70 years. I mean, if, if the Sons of Liberty in the United States in the colonial war of, of you know, the Revolutionary War had Samuel Adams, for example, um, been defeated if the sons of liberty had been defeated do you really think that you know the narrative would be that george washington was a great guy mm -hmm. no the british would have spun a different narrative just like the russians have st uh, spun a different narrative about all the guys who have fought uh most notably bandera but many others against you uh, uh against russian uh oppression so of course they're gonna they're gonna manipulate the story about Bandera and you know and turn him into the 
this great big boogeyman. Not that he was a great guy. So, um, you know, uh, and I, I even know, I even know Ukrainians who hate Bandera, but who will wear Bandera t-shirts because it's a symbol of how their history has been manipulated. It's not Bandera himself. It's the iconography of Bandera as a symbol of a, of a history that has been stolen from them because Moscow has written the Ukrainian story. And so they will say, I don't know Bandera's story, but what I do know is that Bandera's story has been manipulated by Moscow. And that's why I wear a Bandera t-shirt or have a Bandera poster in my house, stuff like that. Um, you know, the legacy of Russia's abuse of this country cannot be ignored when it comes to the decisions either in 1919, 1936, or, you know, 1942, or now here in, in the 2000s. It's, there's, Russia can't wrap its head around the idea that they're just not in, that Indian. Yeah. They want to leave. I, I was going to mention uh, uh, two things um, was uh, from the Russians I talked to. Um, they uh, they say that uh, St. Petersburg and Moscow are, are the king of Russia <laughs> and everybody else in the territories are just taxpayers. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so and uh, the, the second thing is uh, Gorbachev uh, concerning NATO said there was no agreement uh to uh for nato yeah. to encroach and and people don't don't say anything about that as well so um we have some questions uh from the audience um i have one from lynn and then we'll go to rodrigo if you don't mind philip and mm -hmm. Anne, you're good uh she is i guess she's got her mic muted um so Anne's question is can our guest discuss the military preparations for a spring offensive by ukrainian forces and the extent to which they are sufficiently armed by the U.S. and NATO to assess whether they will achieve some sort of dec decisive victory or a knockout blow in a war that is predicted to last another two to three years. So in a sense, I guess if you break it down, do they have enough military equipment coming in? Are they prepared? Do you uh, do you think they're, they're, they're capable right now to uh, push the Russians out? um and 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 let me, par let me just paraphrase like even everybody thinks there's a spring offensive coming that doesn't me mean if they don't succeed totally into crimea that this is the end of the war i mean these things could could go on for a couple of years before they succeed so i understand that but um yeah i mean short of a lot of weaponry operation um they're you know i mean they're always going to want more Yes. Um, but they have been flooded with arms. They've been flooded with uh, training. Um, and they're going to fight in a very different way than Russian military doctrine um, is is structured. And I, I'm cautiously optimistic that it will be effective because it it's a far better fighting doctrine than what the, the Russian doctrine is basically artillery and masses of, of mm -hmm. conscripts. Uh, by and large, that's how they fought for you know centuries. Uh, they, and and if you look at their own doctrine, they openly say you know artillery is the god of war. Uh, 
Uh, whereas what the Ukrainians are doing, uh, because of the weaponry that they've been given, but also because of their their desire, their their acknowledgement that they have a less uh, they, they have less people, and so they want to keep their people alive. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a bigger concern because you, you also want to have you know people who are trained in warfare, who are veterans, who have who have been through combat before. You want those people to survive because they're better on the battlefield. But I mean, there's a massive amount of weaponry that's been flooded into the place, and also contributing to this is I talk about the the Ukrainian desire to have you know experienced fighters. Well, since 2014, they have rotated um, uh, units uh, through Donbass so that every Ukrainian soldier uh, has experienced combat, and that was on purpose because they knew this greater war was coming. So they wanted to make sure that every Ukrainian uh, had been in combat, so they weren't freaked out by it, and they were they were able to, um, you know, fight. Um, I okay, the spring offensive. It's tricky. Uh, spring offensive is going to be tricky because they've got to get it right. Uh, they the the worst thing that could happen is that they launch an offensive that uh, is defeated um, because the Western powers are going to go, well, why are we supporting? And they know that. So they are there. They want to get uh, everything sorted out so that whatever they do, it's going to be effective. Uh, it doesn't have to be, they, you know, they're going to want to take as much as they possibly can. They're going to want to try and take back Crimea. They're going to, want to take back all of the Donbass. Uh, and if they can achieve that, then they'll go for it. But, you know, what's worse would be to try and take back territory and then be rebuffed, mm-hmm. to, be, to be defeated, because then then the West is going to be like, well, you know, what are we signing up for here? Um, they, the, the, they're trained. They're, I've seen Ukrainian forces using something that NATO calls combined arms uh, doctrine, which is basically the idea that you conduct combat operations with air power, artillery, armor, infantry, all, you know, information, surveillance, all that combined into uh, military doctrine. The Russians aren't nearly as sophisticated with that. And I'm, I'm comfortable with saying that. Anybody want to argue with me? I can, but um, it, they, they're using their forces in Ukraine smarter than the way the Russians use their armed forces. So we'll see how much they can uh, they can reclaim. Um, I'm, look, I'm cautiously optimistic that it's going to be a successful campaign, and at the very least that they will drive um, to the sea uh, and split uh, Russian forces in half. It'll, you know, maybe Mariupol is regained or something like that. Mm-hmm. But and I should also mention at this point that much of this war is about Sevastopol. It's not even about Crimea. It's about, you know, a fourth of Russia's naval power is located in Sevastopol and Crimea. And so as a domino effect, you have to, in order to sustain Sevastopol, you have to have Crimea. In order to have Crimea, you have to have a land bridge because the Kerch bridge is insufficient. Right. And so all these domino effects to a larger um, tactical, strategic um uh, situation for Russia, uh, so integral to the naval base of Sevastopol, um, is, is 
in terms of, you know, it's a major part of why this war is happening. Uh, and if they lose their land bridge and can no longer support their naval base, then why are they fighting a war in Ukraine? No, we could true. go into greater depth into that, but... Um, right. Well, we have, I, some, we have other I questions. Think so. I think, the, in short, I think the Ukrainians are about to give a, 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 a whooping to, to the Russians, and we'll okay. see. Fair enough, fair enough. We can hope. Rodrigo, uh, you have a question, my friend? <clears throat> Yes. Um, Rodrigo's very... from Mexico. I'll just point that out. Mm -hmm. Hola. Hola. Uh, I'm very frustrated by my inability to find a single piece of analysis that isn't tainted either by the Putin did nothing wrong side or the if there were Nazis in Ukraine, they're all dead side. But speaking of Putin, I keep hearing from my anti-tanky friends that the Wagner group is threatening to take the mercenaries and go home if Putin doesn't listen to him. Maybe Philip or Ann Lee can explain that situation. Yeah, Prigozhin, Prigozhin is an interesting um, case in, in this entire story. And what I think we're seeing um <clears throat> internally within russia is is something that is historically russian and that is that the the czar uh in this case putin uh always has to be on an elevated plane so when this war when the war is not going the way they want it to um there's a a, a secondary line of what the the, the 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 you know the boyard the arist aristocracy control above the czar um they're now going to fight amongst themselves um, so that somebody can be scapegoated. And I think that's what we're seeing now. Um, because, of course, the Tsar can't be at fault. It's obviously somebody let him down. Somebody let us down. So I think a lot of that is what's happening with, with Prigozhin right now. And he's maneuvering, you know, he's maneuvering to, you know, either get out of, say, Bakhmut, um, and then and then when things go badly, he can and say, oh, was it, you know, wasn't us, it was Shoigu or, or Garasimov. Um, and, and they're the ones that failed us all. Um, because it can't be Putin, obviously. Well, he's, threat uh, he's threatening to move his forces out because he doesn't he's have threatening to move. He just made an, Yeah, he just made an announcement yesterday. He was going to pull out on the 10th, which is, of course, historically important because the day after the night, he's not going to He's not going to withdraw his forces uh, in the run-up to Victory Day, which is which has surpassed history in Russia. It's now, um, you know, achieved the the point of religion, uh, mm -hmm. their legacy in the Second World War. Okay. Uh, so, um, Prigozhin is increasingly one of these militant groups, just like Kadyrov and the Chechens like uh, certain uh, military groups internally within Russia, they are all vying for um, either either uh, an ability to, to remove themselves from responsibility for the catastrophe that everybody sees this war is going to become, or to get supremacy over another group who they then can blame. Uh, so... A lot of that, a lot of that is going, a lot of that is going on and plays into what I have been just talking about, where mm -hmm. I think the crisis, this is not the crisis. 
The Ukraine war, as awful as it is, is not the crisis. The crisis is going to be when Russia loses this war and has to readdress who it is, look in the mirror and assess who it is, if it is not empire. And key to the sense of identity as, as empire is Ukraine. So there, there's going to be an internal battle within Russia. And I, I think Prigozhin is one of the most um, striking uh, instances of, right. of that struggle internally within Russia. Okay, well, thanks, Philip. Rodrigo, are you satisfied with that answer? Or probably not. It, Thank take... you. <laughs> so we have one uh, from Joe in Norway. Um, we now know that the U.S. war on Iraq was a nuclear war due to the use of depleted uranium. Do you know if there's evidence of depleted uranium in use due to the nature of warfare in Ukraine? Can you speak to the environmental impact of the fighting? And I'll come back to you, Anne. Um, I mean, we know that the British have pledged to send depleted uranium <laughs> rounds to to Ukraine. So there there will be uh, depleted uranium rounds being used in Ukraine, most likely. Um, I mean, that's up to the Ukrainians. Uh, they'll be given the rounds by the Brits, if not the Americans. Um, I, there's been no official announcement from the Americans, to my knowledge, that they're sending depleted uranium rounds, but they will be here. Uh, and that's up to the Ukrainians how to use it. And, and look, you, depleted uranium is a, is a very controversial issue. I, I, was, I covered the Iraq war. I was down in Basra, um, where a lot of the hospitals were reporting uh, an increase in, uh, uh, you know, child uh, uh, cancers and, right. and you know all sorts of things well, uh, they're, out, they're out cleaning the mines right now too um the farmers are trying to plant and they have minesweepers going yeah so yeah that's, and that's then there, and then there's the, there's chernobyl there's the zaporizhia <clears throat> power plant there's reports uh, in the last 36 48 hours right. <clears throat> out of the iaea that the fourth the 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 fourth reactor has been um has been uh, has been um you know lined with explosives by Russian forces right yeah uh, in Zaporizhia you know yeah. which is that's a dirty bomb that's in essence a dirty bomb hundred percent so you know um it's to say it's not on people's minds would be you know uh, you know would be lying but <clears throat> again at the end of the day. The, the 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 Rus uh, sorry the Ukrainians are just determined to to have their sovereignty and um, you know nobody wants a, you know the, one of the Zaporizhia reactors to explode but oh, no. that'll be on Russia that'll be on Russia right you know no that's that's very true sorry I just lost my question here uh, we got one from Joe in Norway um, we now know that no sorry I said that already it's from Lynn she wants to know what kind of um, <laughs> actually we'll we'll come back to that i think somebody's unmuted there could you mute please um we'll go to henchman because he's got his hand up and he's live so hi henchman you got a question how's it going <clears throat> yeah i just had one question um given uh putin slash russia's historical pattern uh the first and second chechen wars georgia in 2008 crimea and the sanctions in 2014 the fact that moldova uh etc uh, have less than a serious military. Do you think that Putin will stop if the U.S. pushes appeasement of the annexation of the Donbass? 
The annexation of the Donbass. Um, I mean, if, if the if the Western powers push for that, um, it will be it will be uh, it, the, there will potentially a break with um, Kiev and um, uh, Brussels or uh, Washington. <clears throat> they they the the problem with leaving Donbass in the hands of the Russian um, or Crimea for that matter, in the hands of the Russians, is it's always going to position the Russians to want to take more. Ultimately, they're going, if they hold territory uh, in in that stretch of Ukraine uh, and deny the 1991 borders, the Russians will always want more because they're, because as I addressed in uh, what I said about uh, Sevastopol and the naval, you know, uh, base there, it's a domino effect. In order to keep Sevastopol, you need Crimea. In order to keep Crimea, you need the land bridge. Well, you could argue, you could argue, in order to keep the land bridge, you also have to control Kiev. Uh, in order to control the Black Sea, you have to push to Moldova. Those, these these arguments can be made if you're looking at it through a Russian uh, um, lens. I I do not think that the Russians are going well. Just think, I'm convinced that the Russians are not able going to be able to connect it to their base in Transnistria in Moldova. Not going to happen. They would have to. Uh, they would have to circumvent Odessa, which is a fortress city. I've been to Odessa a couple of times in this war. It's a fortress. It would be a bloody, bloody fight, and they can't just maneuver around it and then go on to to Transnistria. So I don't see them connecting to Transnistria. Uh, as far as holding on to their gains in Donbass, as, as you know, and in Crimea, obviously, I don't think the Ukrainians are going to let let them do that if they can, because as I say, if you let them control that, they're always going to want more. So you need to push them back to ninety. The, there's a widespread feeling here. You need to push them back to ninety-one borders, no more, no less, and then you know. And then solidify that border. Uh, stay militarized. You're going to have to stay militarized if you're Ukraine. If Russia uh, continues to exist in its current form, because they know their enemy, they know the Russians, and the Russians aren't going to ever give up if they have a chance to expand. So they have to be pushed back. And and there's a big question about Donbass. I mean, Donbass is a, is a Donbass is tricky. Because Donbass, Donbass doesn't even actually want to be controlled by Moscow either. There's a whole, there's a whole movement in Donbass about Donbass, you know, as a as a kind of unique place that doesn't align itself with either Moscow or Kiev, and that's a huge movement in inside Donbass, and especially also because Donbass has now been used by Moscow um, as cannon fodder, and they don't. If, if Moscow really cared about Donbass for Donbass. Um, it would have been it would have been you know more considerate of actually the 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 uh, the militaries uh, that were there fighting alongside the Russians. Instead, what Moscow did was you know just kind of throw them into the front lines. And there's a lot of resentment resentment about that. I get that. So um, anyhow, all right. That's the end of part two. Please look forward to part three, which will be uh, posted shortly. I'm going to apologize for some of the, the noise interruptions. Uh, there was an unmuted mic, plus we had a bad internet connection at times.
but just a fascinating interview and, and many thanks to Philip Eitner. Stay tuned for part three. <laughs>